Hi, it's Brendan here. I hope you're having a wonderful Christmas so far. We've got a really special episode coming up for you today. The legendary historian David Starkey is back on the show. And even better, he joined me live on Zoom with an audience. Spike supporters were able to attend this event for free. They were also given early bird tickets with plenty of notice. So if you never want to miss a spiked event, and trust me, we have some really exciting ones coming up in the new year, then make sure you sign up to become a spiked supporter. Anyone who gives £5 or more a month or £50 or more a year is eligible to become a spiked supporter and you can get access to a whole range of perks. You can become a spiked supporter by signing up at spiked-online.com slash supporters. That's spiked-online.com slash supporters. Sign up today and have a very Merry Christmas. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this live recording of the Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill, and my very, very special guest, David Starkey. David, as I'm sure you're all aware, is a renowned historian. He is one of the great historians of Tudor England. He is also uh, the author of countless books about the history of this country. He's a seasoned broadcaster. He's a social commentator. And he's someone who is not afraid to speak his mind, even if it occasionally lands him in a spot of bother. Um, I've always thought of David as inhabiting a very interesting no man's land between being a pariah and a national treasure. And I'm not sure which of those he'd rather be, but maybe we'll find out in the course of the next hour. David, welcome to the show. Well, Brendan, thank you. I mean, uh, I think that makes me sound as I'm transitioning, which <laughs> is, is a thought too awful to contemplate. Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe viewers will help me decide which I am. We, well, in, in the genes, anyway, yes. We might talk about transitioning later on as one of the woke issues that is tearing this country apart. But to begin with, I want to ask you a broad question to kick things off. Uh, I just want to get your view of what the government is currently doing or the state of this government. So Boris's government, Boris's party was enthusiastically elected at the end of 2019. None of us could have foreseen the calamity that would befall the earth a few months later in March 2020. It seems to me that Boris is failing on some fronts. The war on woke hasn't really come to fruition. The defense of history hasn't been as enthusiastic as it might have been. So just to give us, just to kick things off, what's your current view of the government and, 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 and how they're doing? I think the only possible answer is that they are doing badly or even terribly. Um, I mean, what else can we say? I think the real trouble is, of course, as we all knew, despite those enthusiasms, and I remember, Brendan, viv vigorously, election night. What were you doing on election night? Can I make a public confession of what I was doing? I was having a disgusting black tie party at the, uh, at the well, I better not mention which one of the London clubs it was, with a group of agreeable, very drunken young men. And the behaviour got to the point at which it resembled a rugby club dinner with rejoicing. And you look back and you feel, well, we were slightly silly, but Boris performed a crucial service. He got Brexit done. 
And we must never forget that. The last time I was on this show, we were in, do you remember, we were in the Mm -hmm. no man's land, that extraordinary parliament that decided it was a new long parliament in which John Boko was to be a speaker lentor, Dominic Grieve was to be the new King Pym who ran the country from the House of Commons. Catastrophic. Where are we now? Well, we are, I think, in a government that reflects essentially the prime minister's worst qualities. What everybody talks about is hesitant relationship with the truth, to put it uh, no more mildly than that, but also the fact that he doesn't seem really to believe in anything very much, that he lurches from one position to another, and that finally, as very often happens to people in power who don't have strong views, he has been captured. Uh, one possible source of capture, it's widely speculated on, is the fact that we have what I call Canny Berlin. Uh, she is more usually referred to as Carrie Antoinette, but I think in terms of English history, Canny Berlin takes us much nearer the mark. The other great capture goes right back to the crucial man who got us through Brexit. It actually goes back to, uh, you know, Dom, uh, Dom, Tom, Crom, uh, um, to, to, to Boris's right-hand man, now departed and reviled. And he is the one, fundamentally, who opened the gates to what I've called the horror that we're in. We got a Chinese virus. We're at the risk of getting a Chinese society. This is the essential problem. We decided first time round that we were going to do the unthinkable. Lockdown should be unthinkable. And this is not just me. This is not just you know, an, you know, a historian saying this. Uh, my, my friend, uh, Lord Sumption, and uh, uh, that wonderful combination of a former Supreme Court judge and a lively and most brilliant historian, he says it is utterly antithetical to the principles of our politics, of our society, of our constitution. It is a catastrophe. It's an economic catastrophe, it's a social catastrophe, it is a historical catastrophe. So how do you think we got from there to to where we currently are? So if we go back to that Brexit moment and 2019, the election in 2019 was a key part of the Brexit moment. It was really the people saying, look, we've had enough of this nonsense, we've had enough of the long parliament, we've had enough of your anti-democratic machinations trying to block our vote to leave the European Union. That was, in some ways, 2019 was the high point of the Brexit yeah. revolt. And so that was that was an argument for the restoration of sovereignty, the return of sovereignty to the UK, the return of a sense of democratic clout among the British people. But very quickly, we went into a situation which you've just described, where Freedom was taken away from us. Sovereignty was taken away from us. Britain was copying China, as were other European countries, by enforcing an alien lockdown. Is it because the Brexiteers didn't really believe in the project of sovereignty? How did that fall apart so quickly? I think here again, will you forgive me, everybody, if I do a little bit of sociological analysis? Will you also forgive me if I plug the one vehicle that remained with me throughout the whole business of cancellation last year, which is the critic? My last article in the critic looked exactly at this issue. It talked about the oldest profession in the world. That is, I'm afraid, the professions. If you look at the Brexit vote, Brendan's carefully refrained from saying it was extraordinarily narrow. 
Broadly speaking, it was the professionals on one side and the rest of us on the other side. And what I'm afraid happened is that the professionals have struck back. The, they control the civil service, they control the universities, they control the public face of science. And what Dominic did, what Dominic Cummings did, because Dominic was very brilliant, but in many ways he is very silly. He is a brilliant, he was a brilliant young historian at Cambridge. He was the idol, the, the apple in the eye of somebody um, whom I to say I loved would be going a bit far, but I was deeply fond of way back in our days at Cambridge, the late Norman Stone. But unfortunately, Dominic persuaded himself he could do maths, and he can't. And what we've now got, we have got an entirely false professional regime based on prediction with bad maths, with the dreadful Neil Ferguson, who has been wronged about everything. He has been was wrong about foot and mouth. He was I don't mean the historian. I I I mean the whatever he calls himself, epidemiologist. He's not an epidemiologist. He's 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 in fact a reader of runes. He is a, 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 specu a speculator, a manipulator of uncertain data, which he got to predict wrongly that uh, BSE will be a tremendous crisis. Wrongly that we had to murder virtually every. Wouldn't I hate that word murder? We had to kill virtually every cow in the country. Uh, with 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 um, with foot and mouth disease and so on and and this is la laid as open. If you look at Sage, if you uh, uh, the, 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 we've in fact franchised government to a group of loudmouth professionals. And of course, the de what is the definition of a profession? What is the difference between how a professional treats you and how a salesman treats you? A salesman is doing an honest thing. He's trying to sell you something. His job is to give you what you want, what we call democratic sovereignty. What is the job of a professional? It's to give you what he thinks you ought to have. And this is the huge crisis that we're fe facing at the moment. We've got a government that thinks it knows better than those who elected it because it's powered by a civil service. It's powered by a judiciary. It's powered by, as I said, uh, various kinds of medical elites, which again, also, I think are profoundly dangerous. Um, all the time we hear the science says, science mm. doesn't say. Science, science isn't a device for manipulating popular opinion. Science is speculative. Science is hesitant. Science debates. Instead, it's being turned into a weapon of propaganda, of manipulation, and above all, a gigantic alibi for incompetence. Just following on from that and looking at, at someone like Dominic Cummings as a good example of this, do you think the problem is that we have a population where a very significant number of people, 17.4 million of us, essentially voted against technocracy, against the uh, uh, colonization of politics by bureaucrats and technocrats and the professional elites. But we are still faced with a political class that is made up of technocrats. Because the one thing that's always struck me about Dominic Cummings, for example, 
is that he often sounds more technocratic than even the Brussels technocrats in terms of his belief that people can be understood through graphs and numbers and the manipulation algorithms. of be- behaviour. So, algorithms, yeah. So is that the problem, that the political class as it currently exists, even the supposedly Brexiteer wing of it, is simply not up to the task of restoring sovereignty to the people of this country? I think they don't understand what the question is. Remember, these are people who really see elections not as things to be argued, but as things to be manipulated. This is the real problem. We've lost a notion of serious political discourse. Instead, we're dealing with political manipulation, which, of course, is done precisely by all all the applications of apps and of algorithms and whatever that we're talking about, targeted advertising. there's, there's, There's little performances which are nudge politics, all of this. We have we've lost the tradition that the proper thing to do with an adult electorate is to talk to them frankly, clearly, and to argue your point. Nobody has argued any of the points of lockdown. They've never been discussed. Nobody has argued the questions of the use of masks in public. You see, again, I want to do now. Can I, can I again, Brendan? I don't want to go on too much, but can I just distinguish very sharply between two particular features of what's going on now? I want to make clearly I used to be a radical libertarian. I am no longer. Um, and this fight comes home very much where we're faced now. So if you look at the twin faces of what the government is doing, I am passionately opposed to the lockdown, to the turning of the NHS, the grotesque turning of the NHS into a national COVID service, the abandonment of everything else and so on. On the other hand, when it comes to vaccination, I'm a bit of a hardliner. Can I just remind, everybody goes on about, oh, isn't compulsion completely un-British? I'm afraid you only think it's un-British if you know no British history. Do we all understand we are the country that invented vaccination as much as we invented everything else? In 1853, it is required that every newborn baby be inoculated against smallpox. Diseases do not understand syllogisms. Diseases do not understand words. They do understand real science, in other words the sciences of vaccination. And again, what we've also forgotten is the way um, epidemics have been treated throughout history is by draconian measures. Uh, We used to have in this country, and I remember it right back to my childhood, we had isolation hospitals with virtually absolute powers in terms of epidemics, because of course we had no antibiotics, right? I am born just at the moment that antibiotics come in. I was born too late to be vaccinated against polio, uh, the sort of vaccine hadn't been invented, and I got it, thank God, only mildly. So um, we do we do need, I think, to have two, do, do you see what I mean? We mm-hmm. do need to distinguish very sharply in these two areas, and once again, not just deploy unthinkingly libertarian arguments. I'm a passionate believer in political liberty. When you come to dealing with epidemic disease, it seems to me that the arguments say for compulsory Seatbelts become much become much nearer the mark. So, just to, I just wanted to make that point clear. I want to dig down into the question of the science because I think that's a really important point. It's one of the key ways through which 
authoritarianism is enforced and and debate is diminished. But just to stick briefly on this question of vaccines, one of the comments we've had from lots of people since we announced that you were going to be on this live recording was ask him about why he wants to force everyone to have a vaccine. So I'd give the answer. My view on this is that I think those people on my side of the discussion, which is the lockdown sceptical side, the people who agree with Lord Sumption that this was an incredibly uh, uh, unwise social experiment that will have devastating consequences for society, I think that side of the discussion has not been particularly good on the question of vaccines for some of the reasons you've just outlined there. So my position on it is I am opposed to mandatory vaccination. I'm opposed to forcing people uh, to the point of criminalization of being vaccinated. However, I think there is a discussion to be had about the level of social pressure is it is acceptable to put on people to get vaccinated. And I think there's been an unwillingness on the side of some of us who are lockdown sceptical to have that kind of discussion. And that worries me. But just briefly on this particular issue, do you, do you not worry that there is the potential for if we had a regime of mandatory vaccination or extreme forms of social pressure, and we can talk about which ones are valid and which ones might not be, do you not think there could be a, 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 the danger of a backlash of people becoming cynical or wary or sceptical of this idea that they must be vaccinated? That's the thing that slightly worries me, the potential for a backlash if it becomes a forced measure. Yes. And, and again, you know, the idea, you could just see it, can't you, on screen, a screaming old lady, you know, being pinned down. It's equivalent to force feeding. Being pinned down while some masked nurse rams a, a syringe into her arm, you can you can just see it. And what I what I would say, it seems to me that the, the case, and again, this is a very peculiar illness. And sorry, we don't want to go into the technicalities yeah. because it will waste time. It's a very peculiar illness, and um, because of course it's a viral illness, and um, its effect on people, unlike smallpox, for example, is wildly variable. The effectiveness of vaccination fluctuates. You know, all all of those points, but. But I certainly think, uh, although normally my flesh would creep at the thought, a kind of vaccine passport for admission to public places seems to me to be entirely legitimate. I think it's entirely legitimate that people working in the NHS and care homes again be required to be vaccinated. I mean, you know, just look at what you have to do if you want to fly in or out of most countries. You have to have vaccinations for exactly the diseases we're talking about, yellow fever and everything else. And I'm when I've travelled to the tropics, I tend to have a very painful arm. And we accept that without thinking. Um, I think that the distrust that you talk about there, Brendan, unfortunately has been there from the very beginning. Mm. Um, and it's there again, and the whole Brexit, the whole Brexit crisis reflected that. Um, it's been exacerbated by by the role of lockdown. It's been excess, it's been exacerbated by the you know grotesque theatre of sage. I mean, the fact, you know, medical office of health are persuaded, are paraded rather, like, you know, the priests, the high priests in in in, in the battle in the Middle Ages, you know, they come and wave crosses at us uh, and, and, and uh, make imprecations or hold up relics. Um, there's something deeply disturbing about where we are now because of the fact that politics has become so much of a theatre, it really does in many ways smell very medieval. 
And yeah. in the same way, you know, it is clear that what we have in Downing Street, and I've been arguing this for a long time, and with Boris it's absolutely clear, we have a second monarchy. I mean, the, the relationship of Downing Street to any form of democracy is almost accidental. It's a court. It behaves like a court. All the key figures in it are unelected. Um, you know, the extraordinary role of the consort or whatever. So there's a terror. I have this terrible sense of irrationality. And of course, the irrationality is profoundly, um, profoundly reinforced by the bad side of the web. The, the web has got the most wonderful good sides, but it has a, one terrible downside, which is that this notion of virtual reality. Mm. which is false. In other words, it can act as Plato's cave. And you know, all this, this new notion that's, being, that's, that's meta and whatever that's being pervaded, no wonder the young lose any sense of that there is a thing called a man and a woman, because, of course, mm. on screen, you can make the one become the other in five seconds. There is this erosion of a sense of, I talked about this a lot on my YouTube channel, uh, Plug Plug, uh, of a sense of objective autonomous truth. And yeah. this this seems to me, wherever you look, this again is one of the great victims of the times. Let's dig down into some of those issues, the idea of truth, objectivity, science. And uh, I just want to start off by asking you a bit more about the science, as you describe it, This the way in which science has been transformed into the unquestionable, you know, the the the, the gospel truth, the, the decider of how we should live, how we should organise society, which, as you say, runs entirely counter to the whole idea of science, which is about falsifiability, disproving things, debate, questioning, and so on. Now, of course, there's a precedent for all of this in relation to COVID-19 and the sage people, which is climate change. And um, the science of climate change has been used, the supposed science of climate change has been used for a long time to depict humanity in a particular way, to lower horizons, to argue for a transformation of society that some of us think would be very regressive. And of course, that blew, that exploded back in onto the scene again this year with COP26. We had Boris up there. We had various scientists. We had the prophetess of doom, Greta Thunberg, all of them using the supposed science to argue for an extraordinary transformation of how we see ourselves and, and, and how we see the future. What's your view on, on where climate change currently stands? I, I had, I had a, a hope that it might fade from uh, the, the, the public sphere once we had the COVID-19 and, and a proper crisis. But it actually seems to be intensifying and possibly getting worse. Well, again, once upon a time, Boris was profoundly sceptical on these mm. things. And then I'm afraid he married Cannie Boleyn. Um, I'm sorry, I really do think, you know, so fundamentally, politics is personal. You know, the whole of my history was was devoted to getting away from the notion that these things are just abstract questions. They are profoundly affected by personality, and I hence my great attack on on my my mentor Jeffrey Elton for talking about Tudor government becoming abstracted, bureaucratized, a question of system and whatever. No, it wasn't. It was run by kings and their ministers. You know, and 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 you've and you've got to look at that. I think again, isn't it striking? when you look at um, climate change and when you look at COVID, they both become 
quasi-religious, or rather yeah. the pseudo-scientific positions, and they're entirely pseudo-scientific, on both of them have become essentially religious. You referred to the ridiculous. We should just laugh at Greta Thunberg. She is an utterly preposterous, absurd, ridiculous figure. She's like a medieval child <laughs> saint, posturing and, of course, manipulated by other figures behind. I mean, again, David Attenborough, the great sainted David Attenborough, as I pointed out before, he's like a kind of Simon Stylites, you know, this ancient doddery creature carrying down <laughs> tablets of stone, you know, mosaic injunctions. We should be laughing at them. But the problem is, of course, there has been a general institutional capture yeah. Entire university departments that call things like the Grantham Institute at my former university of LSE isn't a department of science. It's a department of state funded propaganda. The Constitution Unit at UCL is not a department for analysing politics. It's a department for propagandising a particular view of human rights law. You know, and you, wherever you look, you see this. Um, there's been a general capture, and the and of course it discredits science. And also, of course, it above all removes the need for the politician and for the electorate. Um, the, the politician, again, and it, it was clearly very calculated at the beginning, how do we avoid blame for all this kind of thing? Right, wheel out witty, wheel out Van Tam. You use them as cover. They are, they are used as cover. But at the same time, that then means what they say can't be debated because, you know, it is authority. It is holy writ. It is handed down from on high. It is the science. Yeah. Um, but it's only, yeah. you see, it's, I think it's omnipresent wherever you look. And again, you know, the whole way in which you're talking about woke, the whole way woke is introduced, it's again through this notion of a set of meta-professional values, which mere electors, mere voters, mere people have nothing to do with and are not allowed to have anything to do with. In other words, I, I, I'm sorry, I'm bit sounding obsessive and I don't want to be. I'm going right back to my opening position that, that what we've seen is this professional capture this professional capture of what should be something completely different. Are we all familiar with what this means? If and for a moment, Brendan, I can, you know, Spike mm -hmm. began as Marxist. Let's go back to some, to some absolutely fundamental political principles. What has happened is we all thought in England that the dominant ancestor figure of our politics was the wonderful Aristotle. And Aristotle in the politics has one sentence that says everything we need to understand about the role of expertise in politics. He says that the judge of a meal is not the cook, it is the diner. That is the role of expertise in politics. The problem is we've now gone to a platonic politics in which we have rule by the guardians, this highly educated professional elite that thinks it knows best. And if you listen to them, precisely they declare, oh, like politician, unlike politician, we are not corrupt. We don't depend on vulgar canvassing for votes. We merely deploy impartial knowledge. There's, of course, no such thing. Um, but this is the problem, that we have subverted Aristotelian politics with the catastrophe of Platonic politics, which is the basis of all tyranny. 
which is the basis of all dictatorship. It is exactly the theory of Chinese politics, it's the theory of, of Stalin, of all the rest of them. It is the notion that there is a class that knows best. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's very well described in terms of the current political moment. It was captured beautifully or, or rather horrifically at COP26. And, and uh, one of the points, I want to come on to the wokeness thing shortly, because I think your views on that are fascinating. But uh, one of the things that you said about COP26, which, I, which really hit home for me, was uh, when Greta Thunberg was essentially bemoaning the Industrial Revolution. And then even more shockingly, Boris Johnson echoed her views in his address to COP26, expressing shame about the invention of the steam engine and the great British achievements in terms of industrialising the world. And you argued that modernity, to a large extent, was born in this country. And now we have a political class, including Boris Johnson, the former climate change sceptic, the former writer of articles lambasting and ridiculing the Green Lobby. We even have someone like him turning his back on the Industrial Revolution and essentially turning his back on the great British achievements in terms of creating modernity. What do you think that says, uh, you you know, leaving to one side our turn against history, what do you think it says about uh, British, British attitudes towards modernity itself when we can have a PM who makes those kinds of comments? Well, I think it shows that we have a ruling class which hates its own country. Uh, This is the point which is made absolutely brilliantly, of course, by George Orwell um, in The Lion and the Unicorn. Uh, You know, that famous remark that the British intelligentsia would be rather caught stealing out of a poor box than singing God Save the Queen. Um, (laughs) And and unfortunately, that which began as 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 a feature of the extreme left intelligentsia has now become a very general feature, catastrophically, um, of not the whole, but a very large part of the governing class. Um, uh, and Boris, of course, as ever, holds no one position for more than five seconds, you know, and he'll, he'll, he'll do a reverse uh, reverse ferret makes it sound far too decisive. He will do a clown's pirouette, you know, and shift position. But the rejection of modernity, again, I mean, let's, let's for one second take this seriously. The rejection of modernity is catastrophic. This again, of course, takes us into woke. Woke is entirely postmodern. Modern means rejection of modernity. You can see this is what it, this is how it starts in the arts um, with Derrida and, and Dadaism uh, at the in the immediate aftermath of the First World War. That complete and deliberate rejection of the Western tradition. The arts are usually they act as the canary in the coal mine. They act as the indicator. And if you listen to Derrida, um, uh, what what he says is you should use Rembrandts for ironing boards. This deliberate universal rejection of the past, and it flows flows into critical race theory, uh, it flows into the absurdities of of, uh, transgenderism and all the rest of it. They are all rejections of history, they're rejections of reality, they're rejections of modernity, they are bizarre neo-medieval heresies. Um, But, and of course, the problem with the rejection of modernity is that it means there is no solution to the problem of climate change other than human suicide. 
Yeah. This presentation that man is the kind of, again, this is Attenborough. I loathe Attenborough with a passion. I think he's a poison. He is the one who should be the pariah because, of course, he presents this notion that man is the sole blot on the planet. Man has this absurd language of man destroying the planet. We are, we need to recover what was a Christian notion. We are the summit of creation. We are the moment at which creation becomes self-conscious of itself. And indeed, to an extent, you know, if you're sort of Hegelian, which I suppose I sort of am, in which man becomes God. In, in, in which his power over the environment. And this is not a bad thing. Like everything, it can be used to bad ends. But our only hope of, indeed, if climate change really is humanly generated, our only hope of coping, and it's pretty clear the globe is warming, our only hope of coping with it is not through medieval mysticism. It's not through self-flagellating. It's not through a bonfire of the vanities. It's not destroying our living standards, because, by the way, the third world will not have its living standards destroyed. All that will happen is that bits of the more sillier West, like us, will commit civilizational suicide and leave it to India and China to take it over. Our only hope of dealing with climate change is through modernity, is through science, is through progress, is through mankind. Um, and again, it's also, Brendan, something that horrifies me. Wild landscapes, most wild landscapes are vile. And can I tell you one thing? Rewilded landscapes are an abomination. <laughs> I, was, I was very familiar with one when I was a young man, a youngish man, way back in the 1980s, when I had what I called my debt chair of history at Dartmouth College, I, uh, the only one of the Ivy Leagues in America that's just a liberal arts college rather than a full-blown university. And it was called a de- I called it my debt chair because I only held it in the summer quarter. And New Hampshire, which is where Dartmouth is, is a fascinating country because it was once heavily farmed. And then because the climate and the soil is poor, as you open up the west of America, those vast prairies and the wonderful rich soil uh, and sunshine of, of, of the Midwest, the agriculture in, in, in that northern part, it's north of New England, that part of, of America is totally abandoned. So you have a rewilded landscape in which woodland and all the rest of it has just grown. And it's hideous. It's a mess. It's dirty little scrubby woods. It's horrible. And of course, it's inhabited by very unpleasant animals. Whereas you look at the man-made landscape of England, it is one of the world's great aesthetic achievements. Um, It really is. It's our Rembrandt. And what these people are wanting to do is to iron our Rembrandt is to yeah. use the notion of rewilding the Lake District. The, the Lake District is incomparable. It is, I was born there. I ran away from it as quickly as I could because I wasn't interested in Wordsworth's sheep or daffodils. But, but, <laughs> but, but, but still, you know, it is the, it's the origin of romantic verse, which is, the, alongside Shakespeare, one of the very greatest contributions of the English language to world culture. But you know, we're throwing all these things away. It, 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 there's a sense of exactly with Derrida or go around any museum now, as it were, decolonizing its, 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 its exhibits. There's a sense of spitting on our past, yeah. shitting yeah. on our past. There's a sense of deliberate defacement, um, a profound welcoming of ugliness. I find it deeply, deeply depressing. Yeah. 
uh, very well said. Um, so you, you, you just made a good case uh, in, in some of that comment for science and progress. And it's always worth reminding ourselves how much science runs counter to the science. And a very good example of this is we are constantly told to bow down to the science, uh, obey the science, whether it's on climate change, whether it's on the pronouncements coming from SAGE or whatever else it might be. But when then, then when it comes to uh, actual science of uh, bio- biology, for example, and sex and the reality of the sexes, if you uh, uh, promote that kind of science or simply express a scientific truth that's been established over a long period of time, you will be witch-hunted, you will be demonized, you will be referred to as phobic. And currently this week, J.K. Rowling is getting it in the neck once again because she said that it's wrong to refer to men who rape women as women. And uh, you now have a situation where even, uh, uh, you know, people are even willing to defend rapists' rights to define themselves as they see fit rather than a woman's right to express concern about the problem of rape, which is an extraordinary situation. So in relation to the transgender issue, which I think is key to a, a lot of the the current destructive attitude to society and to the building blocks of society, and arguably the sex difference is absolutely key to how we understand our relationships and how we understand how our communities work. How destructive do you think the trans issue will become? And again, why is why is the government, well, sections of the government, pushing this kind of ideology? Well, uh, one of the reasons is that apparently there is a young man in Downing Street who has the ear of Cannie Boleyn. I'm sorry, you know? <laughs> the, sto- the Stonewall connection in Downing Street. Um, uh, so, But let's just go back. Um, I've again made a Forgive me again, plugging the critic. Um, What is going on here, again, is very similar to earlier religious positions. At the moment now, because we over... Brendan and I have been using a lot of words. We're both people who love language and we enjoy the use of language. But language is reason rather than incantation. The great problem is that you know, if you look at that typical, st- the, the great slogan of trans, you know, uh, trans women are women, get over it. That's not reason. That is the equivalent of dogma. It is yeah. essentially religious. Let me give you another example. In other words, what these people are saying is, if I declare I am a woman, even if I have got a beard, a penis, and a pair of impressive dangling balls, I am a woman, right? <laughs> Mere incantation. Let me give you another example. When the priest said, hoc est corpus, allegedly, the bread and the wine zit, became blood and flesh. It is exact. In other words, it's even the same word, transubstantiation, transsexualism. It's this same notion. And it is as absurd in one as it is in the other. And they should both. I mean, let me again get clear. Um, although I am an atheist, I am a high church atheist. I love <laughs> the ritual and the language. Uh, when you're in Northern Ireland, you have to define whether you're a Protestant atheist or a Catholic atheist, but that's an entirely different matter. Um, uh, I'm a high church atheist. I, I love the ritual. I, I, I'm, again, as, as, as so many people say, um, I'm a cultural Christian, whatever my intellectual position. So 
I, I have more patience with transubstantiation. And by the way, it does at the moment, at any rate, very much less damage uh, than the other. But they're equally mystical, unreal notions. But it, this again goes back to the point that I was making, Brendan, about the, the whole, a whole loss of the notion of objective truth and objective reality. And postmodernism is simply a denial that there is a thing called truth. It's a denial of the means by which you get to truth. It's a denial of experimentation, of mathematics, of the proper critical analysis of historical documents, and instead it substitutes dogma. Yeah. Where I mean, again, the most obvious example is critical race theory, which isn't a theory at all and certainly isn't critical. It's a series of dogmatic assertions. Yeah. Um, and again, it is the other problem with, with this quasi-religious element is that, of course, to disagree with the current orthodoxy isn't disagreement, it's heresy. Hmm. You are not simply disagreeing, you are wicked. There's, there is this profound moral absolutism, which again is totally antithetical to science. It's to, it is or should be totally antithetical to the modern mind. You talked earlier on about spitting on the past, spitting on all that is beautiful, shitting on history, I think you said even more colourfully. Yeah. Uh, and I want to talk to you a little, a little bit about the history wars. You are a historian. You have, made, you have helped to popularise history, uh, perhaps more than any other contemporary figure in the UK. Um, I, I want to ask you uh, what, how you feel as a historian, someone who studies the past and studies the relationship between the past and the present, where we come from as a nation, how you feel about the uh, turn against history that has taken place in this country, the tearing down of statues, the threat to rename certain buildings, the threat to hide away certain busts or statues if they happen to be of people who, who had different views to our own. There is this almost orgy of historical self-loathing, this growing notion in institutions themselves that British history is just a litany of crimes, one bad thing after another, and we have to distance ourselves from it as much as possible. What do you think that does not only to history itself and the study of history, but to our understanding of ourselves as a national people. The problem is, again, I, I mentioned just let, let me let me ab approach this obliquely. Um, I mentioned just now that I'd cease to be a libertarian. Uh, the reason that I cease to be a libertarian is because liberty naturally destroys itself. Can we all un understand? Liberalism naturally ends in the French Revolution. Uh, the liberalism of the, of the late uh, 18th century naturally ended with the figure of reason impersonated by a bawdy actress of the, uh, of the Comédie Française, disporting herself on the despoiled altar of Notre Dame as the guillotine clicked into place outside and Robespierre was shot on his own desk and whatever, the horrors of, of the terror. In the same way, that 68 naturally ends now with, with, with woke. Liberalism consumes itself. Once you start, and it's something very difficult for an ex-liberal like me fully to come to terms with, but once you say that, 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 that there is no limit to the process of um, self-exploration, self-assertion, self-identity, it doesn't stop. Do we all see what I mean? It becomes a self-consuming. It becomes a perpetual motion machine. This is because, of course, the notions of liberty were traditionally profoundly rooted in historical experience. Mm. And it is the great 
crisis of doctrines of universal human rights. Doctrines of universal human rights were correctly described by the English utilitarian philosopher Jeremy Bentham as nonsense on stilts. And the problem with universal human rights is that they suggest there is a universal man and a universal woman. There isn't. We are products of historical experience. And what we regard as democracy, what we regard as freedom, what we regard as liberty, what indeed to a very significant extent is science, is a product of the specific communities of the English-speaking world. And what we're doing again with this rejection of British history, we are rejecting modernity. The British Empire isn't this infinitely wicked thing. Of course it did wicked things, and not half as wicked as the empires that it inherited from. Do we all realise the only reason the British can conquer India is because it already been the Mughal Empire? Uh, you simply take over this, this rotting heap of an empire, and you, in many ways, rather improve it. Um, but that's why you can have these tiny numbers of troops capturing gigantic uh, the same with the Spanish. In America, they take over the Aztec and the Inca empires, which have been established by profoundly bloody means. But what our empire is, our empire is the beginning of modernity. It's the beginning of, of uh, globalization. It's the beginning of this astonishing, radical transformation of the human experience of the last four or 500 years. And reject that, you reject everything. But the fundamental problem is you leave yourself deracinated. Once you cut yourself off from those values, remember, again, it took me a long time to understand the truth of this. The most stupid statement that has ever been uttered. Let's again get a really important point in place. All bad ideas are French. It is an absolute principle of human existence. All bad ideas are French. And the worst idea is the beginning of, of, of Rousseau's famous book, you know, man is born free, yet everywhere is in chains. Look at those words, man is born free. There are women here. What does a man look like when he's born? And where is he born? We've already used some rude words. Let's use some more. Man is born, as St. Augustine said, so I should protect myself with a saint, amidst piss and shit. You are a mauling, screaming brat. You're incapable of sustaining yourself for years. You're not free. You're a product of circumstance, of people, of place, of values, of time. And one has to understand that. Um, and for me, it took a very long time, Brendan, uh, before I really began to understand that. You can see why, everybody, can't you? You know, um, I was gay at a time when it was illegal. Uh, and that whole process of, of self-discovery, self-exploration, uh, the uh, determination of, of equalization of law and all the rest of it, it leads to, as it were, a profound sympathy with those, those liberal assertions. And then you lose the sense of what's going with them. Because, of course, all those liberal assertions, the French Revolution, the Blair Revolution, what's going on now, they all have that notion of a year one, a new beginning of time in which the past is eradicated. Done, of course, often quite deliberately. You look at the destruction of the French Revolution, you look at the incomparable destruction of, of the Maoist Revolution. I mean, China is barely a historic artifact left. You, know, mm -hmm. you, you deliberately destroy and remake an entire culture. 
Um, and we are at risk of a typically uneasy, messy, slithering into, again, led by professional elites. These are the ones who buy this stuff. Ordinary, sensible people don't. They really don't. You have to be highly educated to be so stupid. (laughs) Um, Right, David, I'm going to come on to some questions from the audience in a moment, but I've got one more thing I want to ask you about, which is about uh, the Queen and... um, the actual queen and the person who thinks she's the queen, which is uh, Meghan Markle. And uh, you are a... There's so many rivals, aren't there? We've got Hannibal as well, yes. (laughs) So you're a monarchist. I'm a Republican. uh, But I'm a Republican who has a growing amount of respect for the queen, often to the horror of my Republican friends, it has to be said. Um, She strikes me as someone who is putting up with a lot at the moment. You've got Prince Andrew on one side and you've got Harry and Meghan on the other, uh, parading around the world, hanging out their dirty laundry, making accusations that seem to me to be rather uh, hysterical and ridiculous. Uh, What do you think about the current standing of the monarchy? What do you think about the role that Meghan is playing in trying to dislodge it? And what do you think will come after the Queen? I mean, I don't really think that Meghan matters very much as far as Britain is concerned. I mean, uh, Meghan, uh, in terms of reputation, I think ranks somewhere below Jeremy Corbyn, doesn't she? <laughs> if, if, if you actually look at the evidence. Um, uh, in America, it's different, of course, because she plays to a very particular audience and plays to it very successfully. I think it's terribly sad. When the marriage first took place, I thought, gosh, good for Harry. He's found a woman, clearly, of force and intelligence, unlike most of the others that he'd been looking at. Uh, There was the prospect uh, as the Queen instantly recognised that these were the natural couple to handle the multicultural, multiracial commonwealth. And it's a terrible shame that it's gone so hideously and completely wrong. Um, You haven't mentioned, of course, one of the other problems, which is the breath of scandal now comes perilously near to Prince Charles himself with the whole business of the sale of honours, with the man that he declared as being indispensable, whose uh, name, of course, within the royal household was Fawcett the Fence because of his previous role in the illegitimate sale of royal gifts. Um, Now, once that kind of whiff starts to develop around the monarchy, it is very problematic indeed. There was a very interesting article um, by Tom Bower, the you know the the, the great the, the, the notable uh, biographer, um, arguing that the real difficulty is that we've forgotten how important Prince Philip was as the dominant father figure. The Queen has always avoided trouble. The Queen hates trouble. Um, and it is quite clear that she took the same view of her family as um, as Victoria did, which is that, of course, in public, she is the Queen and her husband is merely the consort. Um, uh, but in private, both Victoria and uh, Elizabeth conceded the role of paterfamilias to their husband. And what I think we are probably seeing now is the gap that's been left by Prince Philip. Um, And it's a very dangerous one. Um, On the other hand, the monarchy and your position is, I think, actually quite common one, because, of course, at the moment you actually declare yourself a Republican and people start talking about who will be the president. uh, And you look at all the obvious names, at which point 
even my radical socialist friends tend to become royalists. Um, Anybody who is likely to be elected as president will be so profoundly divisive. I think that the the relationship between the monarchy and the politicians, do you remember there were those little figures in our childhood of two men who went in and out depending on whether it was wet and dry. And the relationship between the monarchy and politicians is pretty much that. So at the time of, you know, the Queen's uh, Annus Horribilis and, and all the rest of it, and and the death of Diana, Tony Blair sort of practically puts his hand on the Queen's shoulder and says, there, there, dear, I'll manage things for you. Uh, and the Queen, of course, has never forgiven him for it. Why do you think he's not a knight of the garter? Um, but, but equally now, of course, as the reputation of politicians is so catastrophically low, you know, they rank well below estate agents in public esteem. Um, uh, and and the, you know, the, the figure of the Queen, uh, particularly as everybody pointed out, for once, Keir Starmer actually grasped at an effective image, that image of the Queen alone in black at the time of Prince Philip's funeral as a symbol of solitary grief, but at the same time precise following of the rules by the nominal sovereign, astonishingly powerful, astonishingly powerful. But as you said, it won't be there forever. Okay, right. I'm going to now fire some questions at you from the attendees. So um, we might keep this as a kind of quick fire round to, to round things up. So the first question is from Martin, and he says, how do we restore freedom of thought and freedom of expression in our universities? Not an easy question to answer in a short period of time. Right. What's your view? It can be answered very shortly by an article that I read in Spiked, uh, which is we need the Chicago principles. We need to declare that no university has values. You, this is the catastrophe. Even chocolate ice cream has values nowadays. No, it doesn't, apart from the fact that it's pure and well-made and sold at a reasonable price. Universities <laughs> are not propagators of value. They are not boxers pushing for a particular argument. They are a ring and a referee between rival points of debate. So rather than the unbelievably complicated free speech bill that's going through Parliament, we should simply reenact the position of the Calvin Report that no university, no learned society uh, can possibly adopt a value statement. The only value statements that they should have are the values of free, uninhibited, honest inquiry. Okay, a question from Paul. If you know, I'm, I'm interested to hear your answer on this one. If you no longer describe yourself as a libertarian, how do you describe yourself now? As a conservative. Um, uh, a conservative that um, I suppose I describe myself as a liberal conservative. There we are. <laughs> but but you know, I, what, I, what I tried to explain was I'm aware profoundly of the specificity and the rootedness of the values that I value. That and remember, it's true. Even it's not only true in contrast with China; it's true in contrast with France. As I constantly point out, in so many ways, the Channel is the widest strip of water in the world. A, a term like public interest means something completely different in France. In England, you determine the public interest by having a public inquiry in which lots of expensive lawyers and huge numbers of pressure groups all fight each other to death for twenty years, which is why it takes us so. Long to build a railway line. In France, you have l'intérêt public. 
perceived by a high bureaucracy that then bullies and bribes its way to getting its will, which is why you build, you know, the high-speed rail network in France in 10 minutes. We do it differently. France is still the country of Louis XIV and Napoleon. Okay, a question from Nana. Do you worry that the COVID period, the lockdown period, will desensitize us to other establishment power grabs? Yes. I mean, as I am, I, I, I just reiterate that phrase with which I began, get a Chinese virus, finish with a Chinese society. And I think it's being used quite deliberately. Um, because again, look at, look at the end. We have this ludicrous position in politics in which the opposition doesn't oppose. It says the government isn't going far enough. The, um, the, the whole thing from the very beginning has been this weird charade of the government says we want lockdown and the opposition says, Oh, that's not enough. We want a real lockdown. You know, and it, it, it ratchet, the constant ratcheting up. Two more questions. Um, the first is from Charles. Are Scottish ideas better than French ones? <laughs> <laughs> well, they were once. You had the wonderful thing called the Scottish Enlightenment. Mm-hmm. But as I gently explained to my friends, the Scottish Enlightenment only happened because of union with England. Before that, Scotland was a nightmare uh, because it was run by an extreme Presbyterian elite. And do you know this? Now, this is being deadly. It's, you know, it's, it's banter, but it's also deadly serious. A young man was executed in Edinburgh, hanged, as late as the 1690s for denying the existence of the devil. Now, 50 years later, you've got the explosion of the Enlightenment. It is the collision with England. It is a collision of cultures. This is one of the most, you know, a collision of cultures can either be profoundly destructive or profoundly creative. The only point at which Islam is creative is when it collides with the Greek culture of the Eastern Empire. And you produce that extraordinary flowering of early Islam, which dies a very quick death. So, and, and again, if you look in Britain at the moment, the cultural collision uh, in many immigrant groups is truly astonishing. <laughs> the British Jew, the British Chinese, uh, uh, and so on, they produce genuinely remarkable things. And some of my closest friends have been these people who've straddled two cultures. Okay, David, this is the final question, and it's one that possibly will allow us to end on a positive note. And it also reminds me of um, some of the comparisons you've made between uh, Brexit and the Reformation. The question is from Sean. He says, would you say there is a period in British history that can give us some sucker as we go into the frightening and authoritarian 21st century? I would indeed. I would say very simply, it's virtually all our history before (laughs) now. Uh, it's, it's really put, you can put it as simply as that. We, we, we're often very slow to waken up to things. I mean, for example, we solved the problem of what you do with the supreme head of the church um, uh, up to the glorious revolution of 1688-89. The rule had been, and every monarch from Henry VIII puts it into practice, that what is the religion of the king is imposed on the people. In 1689, we had this novel idea. How about saying that the king has the religion of the people? And you know, the whole of our politics 
turns on a head on that point. We forget just how staggering the change is, that, that between uh, 1689 to the Battle of Blenheim is 16 years. In 1688, England is effectively a French colony. In 1705, England, at the head of an extraordinary European coalition, shatters the power of France from which it has never fully recovered, which why, ladies and gentlemen, is why relations between England and France are always unstable. We forget the 18th century, the French don't. The, the, the First World War, as far as the French is concerned, is the Seven Years' War of, of, of 1756 to 1763. Churchill calls it the First World War because that's the war when France loses India and loses Canada and the world starts to speak English. It's the beginning of modernity. David, thank you very much indeed. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.